So the reading every year on Pentecost Sunday comes from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. There are not that many Sundays in the life of the church where we're encouraged to read the same text every year. Uh, This is one of those. If you've been around, I'm sure you've heard the story. If you're new to the church, it's a great story. Uh, I'm sure you'll love it. But before we tell that story, uh, we need to set the stage. So after the first Easter, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, the disciples were not quite sure what to do with themselves. Christianity was not yet a movement. We're told that, that Jesus appeared to the disciples over the course of 40 days after Easter, trying to help them make sense of what had happened, talking to them about the kingdom of God, and giving them their marching orders for what was to come next. And the last thing that Jesus said to them, we read this last week, but in case you missed it, it's chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In that first chapter, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's next. The Holy Spirit is coming, and when it does, something special is going to happen. There's going to be a transfer of power, if you will, from Jesus to his followers, whether or not the disciples are ready for it. So we're going to get to that that story here shortly. On April 12, 1945, President Franklin Roosevelt died after a a long illness. It was just months before the end of World War II. And on that day, Harry Truman became the 33rd president of the United States. Now, by 1945, Truman had already had a long and successful career with many notable accomplishments. He had wanted to go to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, but he was turned down because of poor eyesight. And so instead, he skipped college. Uh, He is the last president to not have a college degree, and instead worked his way into an officer's commission uh, through the National Guard. He ultimately served as a battery commander in France in World War I. After the war, he served in a couple of local government posts before being elected to the Senate in 1934. He served with distinction as a senator for 10 years before being elected as vice president in 1944. So that by April 12, 1945, Truman had faithfully and competently uh, served his country for almost 30 years, first in the military and then in politics. But still, when Roosevelt died, Harry Truman felt the the full weight of responsibility heavy on his shoulders. Shortly after taking the oath of office as president, he he told the reporters, boys, they were all boys back then, I guess, boys, if you ever pray, pray for me now. I don't know if uh, you fellas ever had a load of hay fall on you, Truman says, but when uh, I heard what happened yesterday, talking about Roosevelt's death, I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. (laughs) By this point in American history, uh, the office of the presidency was already arguably the most powerful leadership position in the world, and Truman knew it. So he asked all of FDR's cabinet to stay on because we were just weeks away from winning World War II, and these were the people who had guided us to this point. Truman told them that he was going to need their their counsel and their advice, but he also told them in no uncertain terms the guiding principle that would define his leadership style. He would make the decisions. uh, He would take ultimate responsibility for the power entrusted to him. 
And Truman's leadership principle was encapsulated in a, in a four-word phrase. If you're a, a history buff, I know you know where I'm going with this. He had a sign on his desk um, with that phrase, the buck stops here. That was his view. Well, when Jesus ascended into heaven, I imagine that the disciples might have felt like Truman felt uh, when he got word that Roosevelt had died. Now, Roosevelt was not uh, Jesus, obviously, but in both cases, there was this unexpected transfer of power, and I'm talking about enormous power, to those who received it, whether they wanted it or not. In the disciples' case, Jesus had been doing all the heavy lifting over the years of his ministry. He had been making all the big decisions. He had been the one with the power, and they were his students and followers. They had been watching him and learning from him over the course of their years together. But never did they expect to be thrust into a position of power. He was the Messiah, after all. And it's helpful, I think, to remind ourselves that the disciples were a capable group of folks. I mean, we, we typically uh, or often have kind of a stereotype of them as bumbling and not quite getting it. And sometimes the Gospels uh, portray them that way. But, but Jesus had handpicked them, after all, and he had, he had personally mentored the 12 of them. But like Truman, on April 12, 1945, they were suddenly thrust into a position of power that they had not asked for. Jesus himself in his parting words to them said that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit in order to continue his ministry and whether they felt like they were ready or equipped to handle the job uh, from that point on (laughs) the buck stopped with them. So let's read this story that we turn to every year. This is Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. Listen friends for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant the author of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, and we're talking about the 12 here, so the 12 had become the 11 when Judas betrayed Jesus, but then at the beginning of Acts, we're told that that they nominated a new disciple, so they're back to 12, and the 12 of them were all together in one place. And suddenly, From heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All of them were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So at Pentecost, the power of God was transferred to his 
disciples. And at this point, uh, we should remind ourselves of what has long been a maxim for those who wield great power. It's an idea uh, that actually has roots in scripture. It's often attributed to the French philosopher Voltaire. It's a famous phrase that's been quoted by, among others, President Roosevelt, and also Peter Parker's Uncle Ben in the first Spider-Man movie, with great power comes great responsibility. For those earliest disciples at that first Pentecost, the uh, power of God came with the tremendous responsibility that Jesus himself had given them. This was, remember Jesus' last words before ascending into heaven, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's their mission. When they got into this, they thought they were just following an itinerant preacher all over Galilee. He wa they watched him do miracles. They heard these amazing teachings. They didn't know they were going to have something to do when it was all over with. But that's what they're supposed to do with the power that the Spirit has given them. The power they received came with the tremendous responsibility of continuing Jesus' ministry. And the rest of the book of Acts is actually about how the disciples carry their witness to the ends of the earth. I mentioned last week that, that Acts is actually the second volume of a two-volume work. The Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles were written by the same author. It's the largest single work by an author in all of Scripture, in all the Bible. And Luke's theology revolves around a view of our salvation history that's comprised of three stages. Now, if you've been in Bible study with me, you've heard me talk about this. The first stage of our salvation history is Israel. That's the, the story that's told in our Hebrew Scripture is what we call our Old Testament. It begins with God creating the world, and it ends with the expectation of the Messiah, okay? Then the second stage of our salvation history is the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's a relatively short era of our salvation history. It's the story that Luke tells beautifully in his gospel. And Luke is the only gospel author who gives us some of our most beloved stories. Luke gives us the story of Christmas, the baby lying in a manger. He gives us the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the prodigal. Only Luke records those stories. Luke is a, a master storyteller, and his story of Jesus is the second stage of our salvation history. And then the third stage of our salvation history begins with the Pentecost story that we just read. The third stage of our salvation history is the life of the church. It's the story that Luke begins in the book of Acts. Now, if you've read Acts before, you know it's primarily the story of Peter and Paul uh, and how they led the mission of the church throughout the Roman Empire. It's filled with um, the stories of what the earliest church did in the name of Christ, stories of these incredible miracles and signs and healings and wonders, all of which are told with the skill of the author who told us those other stories of the first Christmas and the baby lying in the manger, the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son. For example, in addition to that Pentecost story that we all are familiar with if we've been around for a while, we also get in Acts the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. We get lots of other stories that we would recognize from Sunday school growing up if we grew up in the church or Sunday school if we're in Sunday school now. So much of what we know about Christ's ministry and the early church comes from Luke and Acts. And it's this power of story that Luke has a tremendous command of. And so we would expect that the book of Acts would have a dramatic finish, right? He's our greatest storyteller. We would expect the story of Luke-Acts 
which comprises 25% of our entire New Testament, we would expect that to end with flair, with the loose ends all tied up, with the, the plot being concluded. We would expect that we would see how the characters ended up. Maybe even would have a nice closing line. That's the way great stories go, right? Whether your great story is a movie or a book. For example, my favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And in case you're wondering, there are 203 days till Christmas, just in case you're wondering. And at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, George realizes that he's actually got it really good. Everything works out in the end. The angel Clarence gets his wings, and, and we all sing Old Lang Syne together as the credits roll. And not a single time that I've ever watched that movie have I failed to have a tear in my eye at the end. That's a great story with a great ending. Or uh, consider Lonesome Dove. If you're a native-born Texan, you probably should read Lonesome Dove. If you've not, should be an expectation for Texas citizenship. At the end of Lonesome Dove, uh, Blue Duck gets the justice that he deserves, and Call fulfills Gus's dying wish by bringing him all the way back to Montana to be buried in Clara's orchard. And if I just ruined the story for you, sorry, you should have read it by now. <laughs> but read it, Lonesome Dove. <laughs> and if you think of your own favorite movie, your own favorite book, I, I'm going to guess it's got a, a satisfying ending because every epic story does. And so how does Luke end his recounting of the greatest story ever told? Surely it's a great ending, right? At the end of Acts, Paul has reached Rome, which for Luke's audience would have been the ends of the earth. So metaphorically, the story ends at the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus had promised. That's where we pick up the ending of the story. So let's, let's see how Luke does it. Chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. The he here is Paul. So Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. not much of an ending where's verse 32 where's the and they all lived happily ever after where's the the dramatic flair the memorable closing line we don't get any of that which is kind of shocking from Luke what happened to Peter what happened to Paul what happened to the disciples what how did the church continue to grow how was the ministry of Christ um, continuing to Expand. There are so many unanswered questions. There are so many open plot lines. It's as though uh, Luke ends his story with a, a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? An ellipsis. So ellipsis, that's the uh, English word that comes from a Greek word that literally means to leave out. It indicates an omission on the author's part. Uh, the author realizes that there's more to the story, but either does not know how it ends or chooses not to tell us what that more is. That's how Luke, Christianity's greatest storyteller, ends his story with a dot, dot, dot. And because he's Christianity's greatest storyteller, we have to believe that that was a pretty intentional thing. And here's the point. <laughs> That's where we live right now, in Luke's dot, 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 June 5th, 
2022, wherever it is that you call home, wherever it is you are in ministry, you're living in Luke's dot, dot, dot. And it's up to us to figure out how the story continues. We don't have to worry about how the story ends. God's going to take care of that. But we do have to worry about how it continues. Why? Because we have been given great power, and now we have the responsibility to be Christ's witnesses in our end of the earth. Pentecost reminds us uh, that there has been this tremendous transfer of power, which means, as Truman might have said, that the buck has to stop here in this moment with us. Because Jesus did not tell those earliest disciples, nor uh, does he tell us, you might be my witnesses, <laughs> or you can be my witnesses if you want to be, or you can be my witnesses if you feel like it today. That's not what he says. Instead, he promised them almost 2,000 years ago, and he promises us still today. He compelled them 2,000 years ago. He compels us still today. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You may be the only Christian anybody meets today or hears from today. And the only question for us then, really, is what kind of witnesses we will be. What chapters will we add now to the church's great story as we live faithfully in Luke's dot, dot, dot? Each of us has been entrusted with the power of God. <laughs> Pentecost reminds us of that great truth of our faith. There's a reason we read this story every year on this particular Sunday. And with that great power comes great responsibility to be faithful witnesses of Christ come what may. As President Harry Truman actually kept two signs on his desk, I think most of us know the buck stops here. That's a pretty famous footnote in history, that that was his leadership principle. But, but the second sign on his desk had something that is not often remembered by history. The buck stops here, that's true. But he had this other sign that quoted Mark Twain. And I think that that uh, other signs quote of Mark Twain is pretty good advice for us as we do the best that we can trusting that God is with us through it all trusting that the Holy Spirit empowers us and guides us and moves us as disciples that second sign on Truman's desk read always do right this will gratify some people and astonish the rest I think if we can do that, friends, then our witness as Christ's disciples will be faithful indeed. Amen.